0: Wow. Sure. Daniel, Dan. I was Daniel until I actually reached high school. I think it was my senior year that somebody decided my name was Dan. Of course, then everybody does that to each other in college, too. I'm just waiting on Corey to pass the notes out here, and then we'll get started. You know why the difference between Daniel and Dan? Dan? dan just means judge daniel means god is judge so if you if you really want to honor god call me daniel oh. Ooh. somebody called me danny once. once get it on yeah once <laughs> All right, let's start with prayer, guys. Oh, Lord, we come before you, Lord, acknowledging our own weaknesses, our own frailty, Lord, but uh, also seeking you, trusting your spirit to guide this discussion, Lord, to pierce the hearts of those that need to be pierced, Lord, to help us to understand scripture a little more deeply. Bless this time together, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right we're going to go back through lessons one and two really quickly so it's just so y'all can uh, so if you have your notes on those I'm just going to run by the main points here so that we uh, are all starting kind of from the same framework so the propositional statement in, in lesson one was God's work begins and ends with the gospel so we gave you all a lot of stuff that was talking about all right what was God really all about I mean the importance of work the significance in man's eyes um, how God's work really has both an earthy and a spiritual component, and how as we reflect on God's work that it has those two. We also dug into, uh, again, that earthy component, that's the stage in which all of this plays out. So it does affect man, but it also you know, uses the environment around us to, to cause those changes uh, to a great extent. So, so spiritual and earthly, and then God graciously enlists man in his work. So as we moved on from there, that was lesson one. Lesson two dug into the concept of, again, propositional statement, God uses our work to bring glory to himself. So as he enlists us in, in, in labor to, to work for him, the ultimate goal is to bring glory to himself. So all of our work is in that vein. And so we, we dug into how the essence of our work fulfills the great commandments, restores relationship of us to God, um, through, the, through the gospel first, and then because we have that restored relationship, we can fulfill that first commandment through Christ, and then the second commandment that we serve man as well. So, And we do that to a great extent through the variety of vocations that we have. Again, we would have a very meager existence were we not to use the skills of the people around us, you know, the callings. Um, so we dug into that a little bit. We dug into how, you know, the various ways that we image God in our labors, and how God really reveals his own character and and shows himself, you know, though in not a, a perfect way, because we're, you know, imperfect vessels, but he really images himself through those labors. And so we got into how uh, it's really the works that testify to God's greatness, you know, so that your good works, and even Christ talked about that, how, you know, it's... If you don't believe me, believe my works. We gave four examples in John where he, t- where he says exactly that. And, uh, and then, so our approach to work should reflect the fruit of the gospel. So before I get into lesson three, I'll just give you all a, a fun little example that happened to me this week. So I was, uh, I was at my desk, and the chief of staff, who I knew was a Christian, walks into my office, and he says... Uh, Dan, I want you to buy a book for me because I have the professional library for the office in my office. And he says, "I want you to buy three ways to know you're miserable at work." And I said, "Okay, boss. You know, buy whatever book you want." Well, I had all these books stacked up in a big in a pile on my desk, and the one sitting on top of that pile was was this one actually, Decision Making in the Will of God. So the chief of staff, he kind of walks over to my desk, he picks up the top book, and he goes, "Where'd you get this?" I said. David Behar, actually, because we're doing this class on vocation. He goes, huh. Well, then he moves that book and looks underneath that. And underneath that book was Gene Edward Veith, God at Work. And he goes, huh. And then he gets all excited. He starts digging through. I've got these two books on Shackleton and then The Gift of Prophecy and then Systematic Theology. He goes, Mr. Rogers, are you a man of faith? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And it's funny because later the secretary of the office came in and she goes, well, how would he not know that? I said, because when I talk, it's very obvious. I mean, this is what I talk about. But when you talk to the chief of staff, you don't talk about what you want to talk about. You talk about what he wants to talk about. So it had never come up. And, but what was neat about it was that just the whole expression on his face was like it, it just brought light all of a sudden to the fact that I mean, he, he said it as he was leaving my office, I've learned more about you in the last 10 minutes than, than, I've, than I've ever known about you. Um, and I already held you in high esteem. And so it was just really neat because the testimony there is that he saw the good works. The good works testified to, to the fact that, you know, I mean, God was getting glory over the works. And the chief of staff never even made the connection that, hey, this guy might be a Christian. But when he realized it, it just made perfect sense. So again, that's just a, just a, a little example of that. So for lesson three, we're going to just talk about discerning your vocational calling. And so we're going to, we're going to take a little bit of step back when we've been very much focusing on work and I'm going to broaden the definition beyond work. And we're going to talk a little bit more about vocation as a whole. So, which is calling. So with your various callings in life. And so we'll start with this uh, particular verse. It's Colossians three twenty three to 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, Leland Riker, in his book, Redeeming the Time, which I don't have up here, makes this quote. It's on your notes there. Most Christians will believe they can be a Christian at work. To do so involves being a diligent worker, being honest in one's dealings with an employer, and witnessing to fellow workers. But this still leaves the work itself untouched by one's Christian faith. The original Protestants were right in going beyond this and claiming that the work itself is a spiritual issue and a means of glorifying God. We can be Christian not only in our work, but through our work, if we view our work as an obedient response to God's calling. So again, this was, we, we brought this out in lesson two. I'm not going to hang there very much. But there are two main things that we're going to talk about uh, in the context of well, where has God called you, where has God placed you. And the first one is this, you know, first, where has God placed me? And so I'll give you all another story. When I was, I would finished my my master's degree. I was working as an industrial manager in New Orleans. And I had uh, like 45 guys working for me. And I realized at that moment that I had no idea how to do leadership. As much as the Coast Guard had claimed that they trained me in leadership, I really didn't have any clue what to do. I could do statistical analysis. I could do engineering projects but I really didn't know how to lead people. And so the first thing I did was look around in the Coast Guard and say, okay, where are there opportunities for me to learn about leadership? And they had a class called LAMS, Leadership and Management School. So I took this class, and the class didn't have very good theology in it. And so I was challenging a lot of what the or the professor was saying. I'll just give you one example. He says, all right, universal values, all people have universal values. And and like the top one on his list was tolerance. And he's teaching this to a military group. He says, and then we take the universal values and then we have our values. And I said, that's, that's ridiculous. There are more important values than tolerance. Why would, you, why would you teach this? Because if the number one value is tolerance and somebody could walk in my house with a baseball bat and start tearing stuff up, I would just tolerate that. But you know, the right to ownership and some of the things that we brought out in those, you know, those things have a greater value. And anyway, so I got upset, and from that came this, I'm, I want to read and write about leadership. And so there was a guy that, that approached me and says, well, if you're going to do a bunch of reading and writing about leadership, you should get a doctorate. I I didn't want anything to do with it, nothing. I didn't want a doctorate because I thought it made me mess, less marketable. So I said, you know, I went to grad school. They told me, you know, either you're going to be a professor or a uh, or a consultant if you get a doctorate. And I don't want to be either one of those, so I don't want a doctorate. And the Lord really kind of changed my heart in the, in the context of an Easter service. And in the midst of this Easter service where I'm singing in a cantata, um, I'd read this book like nine months before and kind of the theory all came together. Obviously, I wasn't thinking a whole lot about it, so, so that was kind of interesting. And then I got this strong sense that I was supposed to go to Regent University and pursue this doctorate. And so there are circumstances where you have, you know, a clear call in that sense. But I wouldn't necessarily rely first there. And so let's let's start to read through here a little bit. So first, where has God placed me? How do we know our vocation? Strictly speaking, and contrary to the way we pressure young people to decide what they're going to do when they grow up, a vocation is not something we choose for ourselves. Rather, it's given by God, who calls us to a particular work or station, God gives each individual unique talents, skills, and inclinations. He also puts each individual in a unique set of external circumstances, which are understood as having been providentially arranged by God. Since vocation is not self-chosen, it can be known, too, through the actions of others. Getting offered a job, being elected to an office, finding someone who wants to marry you, all clues to vocation. Uh, Perhaps later, another vocation will present itself. But vocation is not to be found simply in future career decisions, but in the here and now. Nor can a person use the excuse of not having a vocation for marriage for getting a divorce or claim not having a vocation for parenthood as a way to dump child-rearing responsibilities. If you're married, that's your vocation. If you have children, they are your vocation. So this is one of the reasons that I'm wanting to broaden the definition a little bit because we have to understand the multiple roles to which we're called to correctly frame the work callings. Does that make sense? So if you want to know where you're called, where you should start is by looking around you and to see where you are. Because I'll give you a guarantee, where you are is currently where you're called. Okay. Second. Yeah, that's just amazing, isn't it? Um, Second, where am I positioned to serve others? Well, I hung there for an important reason, and that's because, you know, again, to go to the propositional statement, the the emphasis isn't on us here. You know, this is on God directing our paths, right? If you want to know where God has you, look around. You'll see where God has you now. And we know that. Why? Because it's revealed. You know, what choices you're struggling with, what directions you want to go, those are not the most important things you need to deal with whether or not you're faithful in those areas to which you're called is a much more important question. But if we if we want to move to that second stage. So we, that's the first one. Where's God placed you? Understand those. Look into those. The second one here is where am I positioned to serve others? So essentially your vocation is to be found in the place you occupy in the present. A person stuck in a dead-end job may have higher ambitions, but for the moment that job, however humble, is his vocation. Flipping hamburgers, cleaning hotel rooms, emptying bedpans, all have dignity as vocations. Spheres of expressing love of neighbor through selfless service in which God is masked. There's actually something in the Mexican culture that's kind of interesting here. And it, and it talks about exactly that, a, a dignity of role. And it's essentially, I mean, if I have a house cleaner, she deserves respect for being a house cleaner. If I am a house cleaner... I deserve respect for that being my role. And so it's very prevalent in the Mexican culture that you do not treat anybody as lesser just because they have a particular role to which they're assigned and performing that work. So it's, it's kind of one of the neat things. You know, being from the annex of Mexico there in Texas, you know, I, I got to experience some of that. All right. So this, where am I positioned to serve others? Uh, in Palm Vista here, one of the things we, we often talk about is, is how this includes submission and stewardship. Right? How, do we, how do we steward the roles to which we're called? Right? That's the, the terms that we like to use there. And how do I submit to those in authority over me uh, in those positions to which I'm called? And both of those are very difficult, um, but something you definitely have to understand and I'll just give you a quick example for me Um, when Naveen was leaving Naveen Gupta um, last about almost a year and a half ago now so it was like November I think anyway Corey approached me and he said he asked me whether or not I would be willing to take over the head usher job at the church and so I went back to my wife and I said well I can't answer you now I've got to talk to my wife so I went and talked to my wife and and her response was yeah I'm not so sure I said well why she says because your primary gifting is not administration. I said, I could do administration. She says, I didn't say you couldn't do it. I'm just saying that you, you may not be particularly inclined in that area. I said, oh, okay. I said, well, what should I do? She says, well, wait, because you're, you know, they're also looking at you whether or not you should be on the worship team. And so as far as the commitment level of the two positions, you know you have the gift to be able to sing, but administration would not really be kind of that gifting. So, so it's a, that's one of those stewardship questions of, okay. And in the midst of weighing that decision, they chose David. David, what's his last name? Lugo. David Lugo, to be the head usher. And you know what? He's fabulous. Very gifted in administration, very uh, purposeful in his work. I mean, in ways that I would not have been. So it was really neat to see God kind of work through that. And he ended up putting me on the worship team. So it's just kind of a—it's an interesting thing as we as we do weigh and think about these decisions. I mean, my primary response to Corey was, "Let me go talk to my wife," because of the other roles, the other responsibilities that I have. And something that I struggle with is over volunteering. Uh, When I was in graduate school, I volunteered for everything. I was a tutor. I sang in a choir. Uh, And my excuse was my wife was working 60 hours a week, so I needed to find something to do with my time. We didn't have any kids. Well, the problem was I volunteered for so many things without telling my wife what I was volunteering for that we ended up on exactly opposite schedules. So while she was working 60 hours a week, when she'd come home, I wouldn't be there because I'd be doing one of these other functions, these other activities. So it's very important to steward the roles that we are called to so that we make sure that we are being faithful in our marriage and in our parenting and into the various other roles in which we're called. And we'll dig into those a little bit more. So it's about more than just gifting is really what I'm digging into here. I mean, while I talked about gifting and we like to talk about gifting, and one of the fun ways to talk about vocation is, hey, let's explore where I'm gifted because maybe that will give me a clue into what direction I should go. And while there is value to that, there's more than just gifting to consider. When we view where God has placed us, Uh, we can see where God has called us. So he's called us in multiple ways. Again, in lesson one, we talked about how we're called to his son through the gospel as believers. There's also, in lesson two, we talk about this whole imaging thing, how we image God. So let me explode that a little bit for you uh, in these various dimensions. Now, again, my exploding this would actually be Wayne Grudem exploding this. So don't give me any credit for it, but anyway... He talks about, he gives, actually, the the five big dimensions there. He also gives these as his individual bullets underneath. And then I pulled the particular scriptures to support them. Um, So these are some of the ways that we image God. Before we talk about roles, one of the things you need to know about roles is... In each of those roles, we have multiple ways that we're imaging God. And so that's why we're going to talk about that first is it's it's about more than just what's your title. What am I, you know, I'm a father. Okay, well, how do you image God as a father? And so that's why we're going to walk through these first before we talk about roles, though roles are important. So under the moral dimension here, the first one is uh, that we're morally accountable to God. So, anybody want to look up Romans 3, 9 to 10 for me? Raise your hand when you get it. All right, Mr. Gavilan. Test, test. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So this moral accountable to God, I mean, this is an important dimension of, okay, when we talk about how we perform our work, one of the ways that we need to consider is this whole, I mean, the sin nature. But also, okay, it's not just about the fact that we're all sinners, but we also have redemption. And if we have redemption in this balance of justice and mercy, some of which Raphael talked about earlier in a previous class, um, it should frame the way that we go about our work because we do have I mean there's a moral dimension to the way that we perform our work so the second one there is this sense of right and wrong um, so it's not just that we are morally accountable it's the second piece is kind of a we know we are we know that there are rights and there are wrongs and it's I mean it's embedded into our hearts and so we can't really step aside from that as we approach our work, that somehow the culture can influence us and tell us that, well, that may not be wrong in this particular situation. Well, you got... You you Y'all know what conscience means? Conscience, actually, I mean, if the Greek word is conscience, it means with truth. So when your conscience lets your conscience be your guide, what's the best way to introduce truth into your life? Scripture. right, so if it goes against Scripture then you're not really being with truth, right, in the way that you're going about this. That's why your conscience wells up within you when you have something that you know that you're going to do that's wrong. It's because you're not using truth in the way that you're making your decision. So, anyway, so we have this sense of right and wrong built into us. Uh, We also have this holy and righteous behavior versus sin. Uh, This tension of living by the Spirit in the flesh as Christians, uh, there's a moral dimension to that. And again, we do a lot of teaching on that particular piece. But we will pick one of these verses so you all can read. So can somebody read? Uh, let's do First Peter one sixteen. First Peter 1.16. Recorded. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So pretty simple, right? <laughs> not, not quite so simple, but, but the, there's, a, there's a piece there where that's the, whole, that's the goal. Well, how are we holy? Well, we're holy through, through Christ, right? When we're living in Christ and we're living by the Spirit. So um, I'm not going to get through most of the other verses here. I'm going to allow you all to dig into this a little later. The point of the imaging God, though, is that God does not mass produce, right? So the ways that we image God, we're at different points often morally, different points spiritually, different points mentally, different points relationally, and different points physically. I mean, we are all unique. In fact, one of my favorite little quotes is, you know, I'm unique, just like everybody else, right? So there's... (laughs) There's an importance to that, though, and there's a piece that you need to understand. I mean, we see the diversity of God himself in the diversity that we see in each other. And we image God through that diversity. In fact, I heard a—I love this statement, but uh, it's one of the things that first turned me on to other cultures. I mean, I was very—you know, my wife asked me one time whether or not I wanted to ever travel. I said, well, not overseas. I haven't even seen all the U.S. Why would I want to go overseas? One of the things that opened my eyes to you know the importance of that is God makes peoples, and then he redeems peoples. And in that redemption of those peoples, we see a different part of God. We, we see a different way that he expresses himself and shows himself by redeeming that culture. Not that that culture is, you know, therefore inherently biblical, but we see different ways that God manifests himself and images himself in the midst of the various cultures that we get to be a part of. And so it really broadened my perspective greatly to the fact that, you know, don't be so, you know, sure that you know the right way to do things. Because there's... If you're talking about Christians somewhere else in the world, and they're using Scripture, and they're living their lives according to sound theological doctrine, by the Spirit, you know, then... They may have it right too. So I'm saying, I mean some of the cultural things are just very interesting to me. So spiritual components here, immaterial spirits, this is really, you know, we're going to live forever. You know, we we have not just a bodily component but a spiritual component. We have a relationship to God as persons. Um, he doesn't relate with us like he relates with the animals. You know what I mean? He he relates with us as persons, individuals. Um, Immortality, I mean, this point that, I mean, we start at some point, but we go forever, you know. So, and we can relate spiritually. So, I mean, immaterial spirits is more than just immortality. This is, you know, that spiritual dimension of how we relate with one another and with God. Some of the mental pieces here, we have an ability to reason and think logically, complex, abstract language, awareness of the distant future, human creativity and emotions, one of the best examples I heard, actually Grudem gives it in his book here, about emotions, is he, he gives a whole list of watching his son play baseball and the team lost. And he says, and yet the emotions that I feel are, I mean, I, I can't give you one. I'm, I'm happy that my son played well. I'm sad that he lost. I'm delighted and joyful in the environment that we got to play. I glory in God for the opportunity to relate with my son in this manner you know, so my, the complexity of emotions that well up all at once um, is a very human thing. You know, while dogs might get sad if you kick them, it's kind of one emotion, really. You know, we, humans aren't like that, and the way that we relate with one another and with God is not like that. It is is a complexity to it that images God. Um, the relational part here, interpersonal harmony, uh, this ability to. Again, be in community with one another, uh, in relationship with one another. Marriage is a great example of that. Uh, and then relationship to creation, uh, which is the whole concept of, you know, God established the order and put man over creation. So there's a relational component to how that works. You know, and, the, and it's really a, a submission chain when you really look at it. You know, he's in authority. We submit to his rule. As we subjugate the earth, which means essentially that there's a submission piece there. There's a leadership role that occurs. God to man, man to creation. Uh, Again, ideally, uh, it's been a little more difficult since the fall. But it's still, you know, a valuable image, that's for sure. And then physical. Uh, We also have physical bodies to reflect God's character. So what you... Again, this goes back to what you do is important, both spiritually and materially. You know, there's, a, there's a physical dimension to what it is that you're doing um, in your calling. So sometimes we get a little too caught up in our in our life work. You know, kind of, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, what's my life work? What's my calling? And yet, when we look through Scripture, we actually find... Most people have a variety of callings and, and they're typically called for a season to a particular area uh, to relate with a particular group and um, It's not as simple as, you know, you get called once and you do that for the rest of your life. I mean, even Paul, when you really dig into, you know, the preparatory phase of what he went to go do, his relationship with the folks in Jerusalem, the actual various missionary journeys, his desires, which were then different from what he actually was able to accomplish, which we see through his letters. I mean, there's not a simple, I'm supposed to go here and do this, and that's it, you know. Those desires are natural and they're God-given. The circumstances are natural and God-given, you know. So we have to look at it in a more holistic manner than just you're going to get one call and you're going to go do that for the rest of your life. That may be true of some people. It is true of some people. But I would say that's more the exception than the rule. So when we look around at multiple vocational roles, and I've got a list there. That's a, it's not a comprehensive list. But it's a way to kind of dig through there and think about, you know, what, what roles may I be called to? And as you kind of look at those, I wanted to give you all um, something I just recently read, actually, about uh, the chief officers of the tribes uh, under David and just the variety of roles that these guys. And these were only the ones that were serving David as king. Um. He gets into the, the officers that were called to do a variety of things in charge of the storehouses, agricultural workers, the produce of the vineyards, the olive and sycamore trees, uh, stores of oil, in charge of the cattle, uh, in charge of the cattle in the valleys. So that's interesting. So they had two people that worked cattle. That's good. I like cowboys. Um Charge of the camels, charge of the donkeys, um, charge of the flocks. Uh, so these are just, and then he gets into the the men of war, the counselors that provide you know actual counsel to David. He goes much further when they start talking about the various roles in the temple. But when you just look at that, just as a small slice of, you know, here's something that just just captures a little bit of what you might be called to, you know. And this was in that time. Where there's a lot more diversity now in the kinds of things that, that we can be called to. So I'm going to give you the story of Buddy Munkers. And that was 1 Corinthians, uh, or sorry, 1 Chronicles 27 too, if you all want the, the reference on those uh, overseers. Buddy Munkers was a friend of mine in New Orleans. And uh, he told a story about, about calling. And uh, he's a funny guy. Because he was never content with what God called him to be. He called him to be a plumber. And this guy used to get into all sorts of difficulties, and he would go back to a gentleman in our church who was a plumber, and he told him, he said, "Buddy, the nice thing about being a plumber is you're always needed. It doesn't matter if economy's good, the economy's bad. People need their toilets unclogged. they need their sinks worked on. You know, when they get leaks, they don't know how to fix it. Again, that whole, you know, very basic existence if we don't have people that know what they're doing. So uh, there's a reason why we have plumbers. But Buddy, about three different times, what he wants to be, what he wants to be called of God to be, is he wants to do a youth camp. You know, it seems all very, you know, righteous. You know, Lord, this is what I want to do for you. And multiple times he put himself into different scenarios to try and do more. And the Lord would go, whack! And he'd have to go back, having lost everything, and be a plumber again. And over the years, I mean, he got to be a really, really good plumber. And, and he'll tell you, I mean, I, I share this story because in August, this was the exact story that he shared with us. Look, I, I know what my calling is. And again, that may not be forever, and the Lord may grant his desires in the future, but right now, Buddy's called to be a plumber. And the question is, Is he okay with it? You know what I'm saying? All right. So once we identify these God-given roles, we can begin to think about creating specific goals. So our specific roles will change over time. So we need to periodically revisit our callings. And the example I can give you is, you know, off of that list, you may be called to be a child for a period of time. And at some point, your parents are going to die. When they do, you're not going to have that role anymore. So, I mean, that's just a basic example of role change over time. So you have to revisit the roles that you do have. And then the, and this is a C.J. Mahaney. I, I pulled from some of his blog here and some of these thoughts. But his point is, is once you've evaluated and you've determined, all right, I'm called to this, 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 and this. These are the roles I've been assigned. Now the question is, how are you a good steward in the various roles to which you're assigned? So what goals do you have in place to be a good steward, to pursue um, excellence uh, in those areas of calling? So periodically we will have to revisit this. Uh, and hopefully as you meet your goals or at least you know, pursue them, some will change over time as well. Um, so this isn't the, the, the point of the goals though too is that I mean this isn't secular this isn't I want to be whatever you know I, I want to gain such and such a position because I want some level of authority I'm, I'm not ultimately talking about secular desires what I'm talking about is the fact that any of these goals and this whole pursuit of these roles it's not about you it's about God, bringing glory to God. So the question is, how do we bring glory to God in the context of those roles? So when I when I say come up with goals, you know, I don't mean that in a pithy way. Uh, evaluate it. Think about it. Determine how you're going to steward it uh, appropriately. So the first thing we need to do is rejoice where God has called us. I mean, if he's called us here and he's worthy, then we need to worship him for where he's allowed us to contribute, you know, and I'm talking about the mundane as well as the exciting. The second thing here is is to be faithful where you're called, and again, same thing, the mundane as well as the exciting. So it it doesn't take a whole lot to be faithful in the exciting, right, because you get some level of glory from that, right? I mean you you have a sense of worth, you have, you know, because the flesh just eats that stuff up. The question is whether or not you can serve God in the mundane just as faithfully where you don't get that level of natural acclaim. So it's an important piece there. The next one under that uh where he's called us. He also calls us to share in the work, share in his work as uh, as he brings glory to himself. He's gifted us. He's given us passions and desires. He's determined the boundaries and timing of our lives and exercised sovereignty over the historical context in which we live, our relationships, our education, training, and experiences, our opportunities in myriad forms, and our circumstances. So each of those is important as we think about those. All right. Now I was going to try and turn this into more like a workshop kind of thing. But I'm thinking I'm going to keep working through the, the material here, and we'll just try to, to maybe turn that, the end of it more into a workshop. So the, the workshop piece is, if you go to the application questions on the back, at this point I was going to have you talk about pick a role, work-related would be preferable, and then pick a goal or establish a goal and have some discussion of that. We're not going to do that right now, but I'm going to do it later if we have time. So we're going to keep going. The next piece here is the recognition that God sovereignly calls his people provides us a useful foundation for decision making. It allows us to look around to see where we are positioned to serve others. So uh, my story here is actually from uh, Shackleton. I don't know how many know about Shackleton. In 1914, this guy decided he was going to do an uh, intercontinental trek of Antarctica. Okay, and, and he told all the guys that were going to do it with him ahead of time just how hard this was going to be. I mean, this was, is this was what they brought out in the London papers. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And yet even with that put in the papers thousands of people asked to to show, again, that fleshly desire for honor and recognition in the direst of circumstances. But the point is, is that this guy was after glory. He wanted to trek across the continent that had never been trekked across. The sad part was it was going to be a 120-day journey, essentially, across the continent. He was going to have a boat waiting on the other side. Well, he gets down there. uh, He's got his crew of 28. Uh, One of those was a stowaway, but anyway... It was 28 total of these guys. There was a big ice flow that had gone much further north than normal that particular winter. And as they were breaking ice, trying to make it down to the continent of Antarctica, um, they got iced in. And the, the ship stopped about 60 miles from the coastline of Antarctica. And these guys were stuck. And when I say stuck, they were stuck. They didn't make it back to civilization for 600 and 34 days. Stuck. Um, Now, that also encompasses eventually the ice moved. uh, It broke the ship up. They took two small boats, and they were able to make it to an island um, off the coast of Antarctica, and then Shackleton actually took one of those two boats, sailed across some of the most treacherous waters on Earth, uh, which is, I mean, there's no, no continent to stop the waters in the southern oceans. But anyway and made it to this uh, fishing village, essentially. And then he commissioned three different boats and eventually was able on the third boat to go and rescue the rest of the guys. But here's the part that's interesting. All of them survived. All 28. 634 days. So my point here is that when you look at where you're positioned, where he thought he was going to be positioned was not. But his role and calling to preserve the lives of those men was very strong in the whole context of this ordeal and which is more important you know what i'm saying the glory the honor the recognition or in the midst of failure to give these guys you know a future you know which you know in christian terms would be a chance to meet the lord you know life is valuable god honors that so um So again, look around and see where you're positioned to serve others in whatever circumstance you're in. So God alone works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, he alone is sovereign over our lives and the results of our decisions. Now, I've given you out of this book, Decision Making and the Will of God, uh, this table. And he really kind of just illustrates in this table the fact that every one of these boxes is different. I added that last component, this believer's role. Of active or passive, um, but essentially, moral guidance is the stuff that's written in Scripture, right? The stuff that we know—the revealed will of God. Essentially, wisdom guidance is don't struggle over what shoes to put on, or pray to the Lord to determine what shoes to put on. While I'm not saying that's an inappropriate relationship with the Lord, and as we walk with the Lord, we you know are with Him the whole time, but. We are given the ability to reason and make decisions. And so those kinds of decisions may not be as important as others. And we can see that to some extent. But the point is is that we have this ability to reason, and that's wisdom guidance. Is that as you have knowledge, have capability to make decisions, you make decisions. You seek the Lord, but make decisions too. I mean, again, God is not always... He's often silent. So... Sovereign guidance, this is really, uh, this is secret will of God. So this is, you know, God directing things that you just don't recognize that he's directing things. I mean, ultimately. So you've got revealed will, you have just your own abilities as you're made in the image of God. You have, you know, the secret will of God. And then you've got this last one, which is special guidance. And this is really when God decides to reveal himself individually to us. And, uh... And we don't want to write that off, I mean, ultimately, because he has, through his spirit, given us that opportunity. So, I mean, we are to seek that. And in faith, he provides that uh, at times. So, so anyway, that table's for your use. It essentially shows kind of the same ideas as the ways that we image God, actually. If, we, if you flip back to the, the imaging God components, again, we have moral, again, a moral will. We have spiritual Again, there's a, there's a spiritual will. There's uh, I'm lost in my papers. There's this wisdom guidance. I mean, that's mental capabilities. I mean, there's a direct connection between these things and the way that we image God. He reveals Himself in similar ways to which He images Himself in our lives. So, there's a direct connection between those two, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to give that to you. Uh, is because that's true. And then the special guidance really is the relational guidance. That is the relational guidance between you and God. Um, and again, just like everything else, Ad ain't cookie cutter either. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to deal with you based on his relationship with you. So, um, Now, I'm going to give you essentially the same framework told in different terms. Because I'm just giving you the same form, framework four different times if you all haven't caught on to that. But... Uh, but I'm giving it to you a little different each time because I think you might catch it just a little different depending on how I present it to you. So in this book, Wayne Grudem's The Gift of Prophecy, uh, he talks about the way that we're gifted specifically for the church. Um, so... Again, the statement for this one is, while gifting is not the only indicator of vocational roles or even the primary method by which we understand vocation, it's good to use the different gifts God has given to all of you. So in Grudem's book, he talks about how the fact that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers in miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of language. And he's really presenting that, Paul is presenting that for the reason of uh, showing God's sovereignty in making those decisions. Very important thing to, however he's gifted you, essentially deal with it. I mean, this is how he's gifted you. And he sovereignly appoints these things, and you need to praise God for whatever it is that he's gifted you to do. Period. Now, once we understand that we're sovereignly gifted in certain ways, there are multiple times that then Paul goes further and goes, in this particular, in 1 Corinthians 12, says, but seek after the higher gifts. So he says, well, God's in control, but but seek the higher gifts. Well, the first thing we need to understand as we look at the higher gifts is why he calls certain gifts higher. And so, again, so my part, first piece there is God is sovereign. He's distributed gifts as he thought best. Each believer has been given some kind of gift, and every gift is needed. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with whatever God has gifted you in? Or do you want a different one? This, this is a very important question. The next one is these are probably better recognized as uh, these particular uh, Positions in the church again: apostles, prophets, teachers, workers in miracles, are probably better recognized as functions than offices and require no public re- recognition. So, can you serve in secret? And again, Grudem makes this argument by saying, um, essentially, because a prophets are receiving direct revelation from God, and when you look through, and this this whole book is him looking through what Scripture says about prophets specifically, that they don't speak the very words of God, but they do have revelation from God. Um, his argument is that you wouldn't have a, an office in your church of prophet because that's almost like trying to tell God that's the guy you talk through. Does that make sense? He's appointed these as functions in the church, but not necessarily offices. So, again, if you have the gift of teaching or you have the gift of prophecy, you use those to benefit the church, but, again, it has no public recognition associated with it, which is what we often associate with offices, that you know, somehow we elevate these folks. The only folks elevated in Scripture are elders. So, I mean, apostles, too, but uh, there's a lot to say that, you know, apostles did speak the very words of God. Again, Grudem's argument. So there are no new apostles um, in the way that Scripture uses the term apostle. So now let's talk about why that order. You know, so we're talking about seeking the higher gifts. Why are they in this order? And if you walk down through the order, apostles first, prophets, teachers, workers of miracles, um, healers, helpers, administrators. The argument that Gruda makes here is that they're in this order because they're in the order with which they provide benefit to the church. Apostles first, they're speaking the very words of God. They're writing down scripture. Prophets second, they're speaking based on revelation from God. Teachers next, they're using a gift given them t- by God, but it's not revelation. This is them. Again, This, you know, if you go back to how he reveals himself, this is wisdom guidance stuff. This is them dealing with the materials in the way that they've been trained to understand the theology to present the material to you but it edifies the church. It builds it up. Um, Workers in miracles, the same thing. So this is the order of edification of the church, the service that it provides to the church. That's why they're in that order. So when he says, seek after the greater gifts, what I'm going to do now is this is, now this is me, okay? So I'm no longer speaking for Grudem. If we apply that same framework to vocation, We essentially have the same framework that I just presented you from these various authors. Number one, accept where God has gifted you and placed you. I mean, that's sovereignly appointed and God is in control. Make sure you're okay with that. Second, the way you determine whether or not you should take a different role is does it give you more opportunity to serve In the framework of all of your roles, all of your callings. So I'm going to say that again. The first piece is God's sovereign. He's given you and appointed you and provided you with where you are in all of your roles. If you're going to make a decision, the framework for that decision should be that second piece. Where am I positioned to serve others? And if you're going to make a work decision... You better include your role as husband, as father, as mother, as worker. I mean, include all the roles and determine: Am I really going to have a greater opportunity to serve as a whole by making this decision, or am I cutting corners somewhere to be more effective in other areas? And again, we're—you'll see this framework again um, a little bit later. So. Greatness in this context measures usefulness to the church. Again, I just said this. So in 1 Corinthians 12:28, apostles are first, mus- most useful in building up the church. Prophets second, teachers third, because they also contribute greatly to the church's edification. So, and then he also goes, I mean, if you look just at the context of the overall scripture here, that's 12. What's next? 13. 1 Corinthians 13, love. I mean, using the gifts is good, but how much better is it to use the gifts in love? And let me tell you about love. So, again, as we serve others, we don't serve others for ourselves. We serve others out of love first for our Savior and love for fellow man. I mean, that's, those are the first and second commandments. That's, I mean, this is why we're really doing this. I mean, it's not for our own um, glory. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, get the, get the mic, though. I just wanna understand yes. I just wanted to understand the point you were making about I think you preluded it with where to seek the greater gifts and vocation and then you said essentially be content with where you are. First. First. And then if you are seeking a decision to change, does it give more opportunity to serve in all of the roles or in the mix of the roles that you've been appointed to? Correct. So could you just e- explain a little bit more how that ties into seeking the greater gifts in vocation? Absolutely. Um, let me Actually, the next section deals—it um, gives it to you, so, but I will, I will help you out there. Um, so applying Grudem's interpretation of Paul's words within vocation, we see a f- good framework for making vocational choices. Trust in God's sovereign control and accept his distribution of gifts and calling. Seek not after oppor- or offices but opportunities for service. Seek after the greater gifts. And again, I think this answers is what you're saying. If it doesn't, let me know. Those opportunities which provide a greater opportunity for service. And, this, and I use this term for vocational edification, fruitfulness. Now, when I say that, what I'm talking about is not just your ability to edify others and build them up, but also the context of whether or not you're going to be edified in that relationship. In other words, it's not necessarily our role to fix others. The question is whether this is a mutually beneficial relationship, growth opportunity. That's a fruitfulness kind of a question. How, how will we bear fruit in the context of this particular decision? And again, so when you dig into it here, your good works bring glory to God. Perform them in love to him first, then others. Again, fulfilling the great greatest commandments. So... But there's two pieces to be cautious here. One, you need to be be cautious in striving. Um, And I mean that only in the sense of your works don't change your relationship to God. A relationship to God is established through Christ. So even in the context of serving others, We don't gain better standing before God in the performance of those services. What we gain is the ability to glorify God because our good works testify to him. So that people might see those good works and glorify God. So I know it's kind of a rough thing. and, And if you look at, I'm going to give you Piper's questions where he really, he gives specific questions to help relate these things. But I gave it to you this way because, again, that it might be helpful to some folks to hear it this way as opposed to the two other ways I've told it to you before. I mean, I'm just telling the same thing four times. So, um, so again, this the breakout group I was going to have here, and, again, we're, we're doing really good, so we'll probably actually be able to deal with some of these questions. Um, is the same question that Al asked on Sunday, which I found really interesting. Um, essentially, it's what areas do you have opportunity for greater service in the context of your work? I mean, that's, he asked the same question in the context of the church, in, in the context of evangelism. What opportunities do you have for greater service in the context of your work? Because we do serve others in that context as well. Okay. Now I'm going to get you into Piper's questions here. So God calls us to faithful stewardship of our choices and opportunities as well as our gifts and resources. So we should carefully weigh vocational decisions as a faithful steward would. So it's appropriate to ask, and again, all these questions come from Piper except for the two-part framework that we provided there. The first question that he gives is, How will God use this as a position or opportunity, or this position or opportunity as a means of grace in my life? And I'm not going to read through the questions there for you, but fabulous questions here. Maybe I will read them through. Is taking this job part of a strategy to grow in personal holiness? Will this job help or hinder my progress in esteeming the value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord? Will this job result in appropriate pressures on me to think or feel or act against your King? Um, will the activities and environment of this job tend to shape me, or will I be able to shape it for the Christ-magnifying purposes of God? Will this job provide an occasion for me to be radically Christian so as to let my light shine for my Father's sake, or will my participation in the vision of the firm tend, by definition, to snuff my wick? Does the aim of this job cohere with the growing intensity in my life to be radically, publicly, fruitfully devoted to Christ at any cost? And again, the, I see Piper's framework, before I move to the second half here, is essentially the two commandments here. Am I going to glorify God? Am I serving God and honoring God in the context of this decision? I mean, that's the first commandment. Are we glorifying God? The second piece is our relationship to man. So, so the second piece you see there, can I, through this opportunity, make full useful offering to the Lord and my fellow man? Can I earnestly do all the parts of this job to the glory of God, that is, in a way that highlights His superior value over all other things? Will this job help establish an overall life pattern that will yield a significant involvement in fulfilling God's great purpose of exalting Christ among all the unreached peoples of the world? Will the job feel like a good investment of my life when these two seconds of preparation for eternity are over? Will this job be worthy of my best energies? Does this job fit with why I believe I was created and purchased by Christ? Does this fit together with the ultimate truth that all things exist for Christ? And will this opportunity allow me to also glorify God in other vocations? So, again, this, I think Piper explodes it a little bit more as you, as you I mean, if you go through every single one of those questions. But essentially, it's the same framework. Are we following after the two commandments? Are we content with where God has placed us first before we look for those other opportunities? Um, now, I would say this about contentment in your current circumstances Um, if we're going to honor God in that context and you have an honest desire for more than you have vocationally are you going to God first if you have a desire for more are you beginning with God are you saying Lord I want more i because it, one thing that it does, it it, it helps establish. I don't know. It, it takes quite something to go before God and make that statement, uh, and it because He has placed you where He's placed you. So asking for more, while it's not wrong, He's the one you start with when you ask for more, because He's the one that puts you where you are. Right? I mean. It, we don't look elsewhere. We look to God first. And so you seek God first. If you, if you want change to change your circumstances, go to him. God, you've placed me here. You're in control of all of this. I, please, change my circumstances. I mean, bear your soul before him. That's, again, that relational component to the guidance. I mean, seek God. I mean, you're in relationship to him through Christ. You know? Be on your face before him and uh, see what he says. Now, Piper also gives uh, four mistakes in approaching vocation. So I'm just going to kind of go through these pretty quick. Um, Big's not better than small. So, again, as a Christian, let your works be marked by gospel-born zeal at any level, uh, in any circumstance, second one there new is not better than old best example i have there is this do not forget the lord thy god who is and was and is to come i mean that's said three different times in revelation just alone he was he is he is to come he's the oldest thing there is right so if you think new is better than old or you think that new truth is better than old truth eh, you know He's the one that establishes truth. If he revealed it to a guy 300 or 400 years ago in a different way, it probably still has bearing for today. In fact, often that's where you might want to go first, is to some of the older writers, the new writers. I don't put so much stock in. Um, Having is not better than being. Uh, My example here, again, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? So it's not about what you have other than to honor God and say, God, you've given me everything I have. Being is the important part here. And again, go back to this relationship component. I mean, being in relationship to God, being in the sense of we're saved not just from something but to something. And it's not just something. It's to God himself that one day we're going to see him face to face. You know, that's just amazing. So don't work for food that spoils. I mean if you're seeking after earthly stuff right, just don't work for food that spoils and then visible is not better than invisible so uh, in fact well, there's a pretty good context within scripture that invisible is actually much better than visible because he who receives his glory here on earth has already received it so would that you would serve in the secret um, and know, again, know that such work's not in vain. All right. So let's go back, and I'm going to, well, we'll, st- we'll first open it up for questions. If I don't have any straight out questions, then I'm going to have you all kind of sit at your tables and talk about one question at a time here and see if questions get generated at the table level, you know, as you all have some discussion. So, does anybody have any questions at this point? Did I answer your question, Hugh? Or do I need to build it out a little more? Okay, we're going to go back to my first little breakout question. Then, all right, talk about at your at your uh, tables there, and I'm just going to give you about three minutes to do this. So don't talk very long. Um, Pick a role, a work role specifically, and then just pick a pick a goal associated with that. Now. A lot of us already kind of have this. I mean, because, again, we're taught well here. So when you think about it, you know, and, again, just preferences, focus on work. And come up, again, just pick one of your roles and then just share with the group, you know, what what a goal that you have in that realm is. And then, uh, again, any questions that come out from that discussion, uh, we'll talk about. So, all right, I'm going to give you three minutes. Go. All right. I know there wasn't very much time. But I want to give you all an expounding point. Actually, Jason Stubblefield came up here, and the question that he was asking me is um, one of the ways that he frames some of these how do you deal with roles and those kinds of things is before you can get to goals. So I start with, all right, here's my role. Here's where I'm called. Here's where I am. Before I can get to what my goals are, I have to know what God's expectations are. So I wanted to point you back to the imaging God. Peace. Because in the in the ways that we image God, those are the expectations. They they're embedded within there. There are moral expectations, there are spiritual expectations, there are mental expectations. Again, because in where we are established in creation, God, man, creation. The way that we relate with creation, the way we relate with others, is under the context of how it is that we're imaging God. So God's expectations are directly embedded here. Does that make sense? So, and again, this is by no means complete. I mean, it it's the framework, but you can go much further on what exactly these imply. Um, so my other recommendation is start with one... <laughs> because you're going to quickly become overwhelmed if you try to look at every one of those components and figure out how you're going to image God in your job as you are, you know, relating with creation. I mean there's like a green component to that. You know what I'm saying? How am I how am I stewarding in my relationship to creation? You know, there's this ability to think reason and think logically. You know what what what's really my level of ability to think in logical form? I mean there's you have to kind of get trained in that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just to pick one and then build it from there. Any other questions? Got about five more minutes here. Okay, I'm gonna make y'all talk again if you don't have any questions until they come out of that room. All right, the second question I want y'all to talk to each other about is, you know, in the context of your work, what opportunities do you have for greater service? Okay, and we'll go we'll go till about one minute left, and then again we'll talk about it if it generates any questions as y'all discuss it. So, what opportunities do you have for greater service in the context of your work, um, or you can continue to talk to one another? All right, Lord, we thank you for this time, this ability to to deal with your word, to struggle through it, to think about it, to apply it in this particular context of our lives. Lord, and we really give you the glory. And we pray your spirit would work in the lives of those folks that have to make these decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.